1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has been writing to these believers. Chapter 5, he's speaking about judgment inside of the church. And he's made the point that the believers obviously are to judge those inside the church based on their profession as Christians. But we don't judge the outside world, which doesn't know the Lord and doesn't have his spirit. And now he's going to address another problem related to that. And he's going to tell them that they're not supposed to go outside of the church to unsaved judges and courts to deal with inside matters. So verse 1, he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So Paul, right off the bat, there's a problem here he's going to address and that he's heard that apparently Christians in this church are suing one another. There's a large kind of merchant community there. No doubt there's a lot of issues in relation to that. And it was a common thing, apparently, this happening there. Paul addresses it pretty head on. He says in verse 1, dare any of you. That could also be translated there, have you the courage. He's, he's somewhat shocked that the believers have the boldness to proceed on that type of course of action to take one another to court. Dare one of you having a matter against another, having a matter there, that, that word means something of a technical term of a lawsuit, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints. And Paul here is basically acknowledging that he is shocked that believers will take one another to the court over these whatever issues they were dealing with. Um, he begins by saying, do you not know, in verse 2, and he'll say that six times through the rest of the passage. He says it in 2, he says it in 3, he says it in 9, he says it in 15, he says it in 16, he says it again in 19. And he's already mentioned that earlier in the book. The, the point again is, when he says, don't you know, it's something that by now they should have known and not needed explained to them. By saying, don't you know, he's saying, you guys should already be mature enough to realize that taking, to one, another, taking one another to court as believers is not something that's pleasing to the Lord or that I should have to tell you that you shouldn't be doing. You, should have, you don't need instruction and reproof on this. You should already know this yourselves. And what he does is, in verses 2 and 3, he points to their future and he reminds them of what their real identity is, is as Christians. He says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? The Bible clearly teaches that saints are going to judge the world. We're going to be a part of God's rule and reign. The word judge means to judge. It could be related to condemnation. It could also just be to sep literally separate things. It's also used for ruling and reigning. So Jesus told the disciples that they would 
reign with him and be seated on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. It didn't mean that they were going to condemn them all. It means that they would be part of the rule, the administration over them. And the Bible clearly teaches, 2 Timothy, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. That you and I are going to have a part of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ on this earth with him. And what Paul is saying is, if that's what we're called to, whether you feel like you're far from that or not tonight, that is what's real in the Lord. If, if that's what your destiny is, that's what God is raising you up to do. He says, then are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Things that are way less important than that? literally trivial things? How come you can't judge these trivial things here and now? And from Paul's perspective, in the light of God's return and his coming kingdom, these were trivial things. People are always going to have a way to defend themselves. I know maybe this isn't that important, but, you know, I have a right to this or that. There's always going to be some type of thing that we can explain, but just about anything these guys were suing each other for was trivial in the light of the kingdom of God. And the problem is that they can't even see this, that he has to even say this to them. It's, it's even worse that he has to explain that it's wrong than that it's happening. Like you can... You shouldn't have to, most people, they lie or they steal and they know it's wrong. They don't need it explained to them. Paul's shocked that he even has to now explain this to them, that this would be wrong in the Lord's sight. He says in three, he's going to take it up a notch here. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? He takes it a step further Again, arguing from the lesser to the greater or the greater to the lesser, you're going to judge not only things in the temporal realm, in the spiritual realm. You're going to judge angels. You're going to be over the administration, literally, of angels, whether the condemnation of fallen angels or the way that the good angels serve were created in his image and likeness. The Bible says he's the head over all things, all principalities and powers, and we're going to share in his rule and reign. And Paul says, if you're going to be a part of that, the rule and reign of spiritual and eternal things even, then how can you not faithfully deal with natural things? These common things here on this earth. Sadly, you know, they're standing before unsaved judges because, you know, in... In the will, the Dutch oven they really wanted was left to their sister, and now they're suing each other over it because they should have it. Or, right, it's, there's this person's fence is on my lawn, and I don't want it on my lawn. There's these things that happen, unfortunately, even in our society, that people begin to hold these rights, and they forget the actual perspective that we're supposed to live with as believers. And Paul is trying to bring them back to what real life actually is. So he says in verse 4, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. So 
that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul, he says, some people question whether verse 4 there is um, a question or a statement. Either way, he says, I say it to your shame in five. The, the point is, he's saying, it, it'd be better if you took the least esteemed saint in the congregation and worked out your issues before them than before an unjust judge. And he, he says, I, I literally have to say these things to your shame. Because this church, remember, they, they saw themselves as wise. They were proud of their wisdom. And Paul says, there's not one single wise saint among you that can help brothers deal with issues? There's nobody there in the whole congregation that you have to go outside and take one another to court, that you can't deal with situations? And the ultimate problem is, six, brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So, again, the brother versus brother is the issue here. It's not that a Christian can't ever find themselves in court or before law. If you want to get married, you got to go get a marriage license. There are certain legal things that have to happen. Paul himself stood before judges and claimed certain rights. It's, sometimes we get forced in that scenario. We don't want to be there. The, the problem here is two Christians over trivial matters are choosing to go to court and sue one another, and that before people who aren't even believers. And what it does is totally ruin the testimony of who they say they are and what their values actually are and what Christ has done in their lives. So he's not saying that no Christian should ever be found in court. He's making the point that a trial between two believers in unsaved courts isn't an innocent matter. It's not just a little thing. And he's shocked that the Christians in his day would think that it is. And honestly, he'd be just as shocked today. And unfortunately, we see this all over the place. Uh, sadly, there are whole sections of the church that are going before unsaved judges to fight over property and money and pensions because they want to split here and there. Paul would be heartbroken about those things. And what he says is, there's a total lack of perspective in this. So, he says in verse 7, he's, he's kind of reasoned through it here. Now he's just going to give the rebuke. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Paul says, listen, this is, this is a no-win situation. Any Christian who takes another Christian to court to sue over something has already lost, Paul says. He says, it's an utter failure. There's no, there's no win here. Even if your legal issue gets settled and you get the money or the property or the possession that you think is yours that you want, you get your fair share, you don't actually win. 
Because a win for you is a loss for Jesus. And if, and if the only way I can win is for Jesus to lose, it's not a win. It's an utter failure. He says, the win for you in this scenario is a total loss of testimony of the work of Christ in your lives. You mar your testimony as believers in Jesus Christ. So he says, it's an utter loss. You can't, you can't win like that. You don't come out on top. You failed in what you're ultimately called to do, which is not have possessions in this world, but be salt and light, be a witness and a representative of Christ. So if the person's like, well, what, what are we supposed to do? Here's, here's what Paul says. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather allow yourselves to be cheated? He says, be a witness for Christ and lose your physical goods. The person took your jacket, give them the other one too. <laughs> right? that, yeah, you got, you got cheated. Accept the wrong then. I mean, it's not, it's not anything that Jesus didn't do. Jesus, of course, was perfect. And he came and accepted all types of wrong on our behalf for us. That's what the cross was. The cross was shame. It wasn't just suffering. It was suffering and shame. Rejection. He was despised, looked down on. He was cheated. He was the rightful king. And he was mocked. And he did all that for us. But also to be a witness. To obey. To be the light of the world. And he says, if anyone wants to follow me, they're going to have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And if suffering wrong was evil, Christ wouldn't have given us that example, nor would he have literally commanded us at times to suffer wrong. And don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Or to pray for those who would despitefully use us or persecute us or slander us. Bless and not curse. Again, we can just go through the scripture of his commands over and over again. And the person who is living for this world and materialistic, they're saying, I have this right, what do you want me to do? And Paul's like, it's really easy. Drop it. Let yourself be cheated. Keep your witness. Let them take the thing and remain who God would have you to be. Walk worthy of Christ. I, I will say, certainly, in, in uh, the best case scenario, the believer is not totally even run over. If a believer goes to the church, if two believers have an issue and they go to the church, this person lives next to me and they keep stealing things from me. And they're talking about it in the church. And then the people at the church, whoever was there to help them deal with the issue, address the issue. And then that person continues to do this thing. The person continues to steal. Well, at some point, the church can step in with what just came in the last chapter, which is church discipline. If you're an unrepentant thief, then you will be judged 
inside the body of Christ for your profession. Right? So it's not even like a Christian has no recourse. But Paul is, is speaking about a very specific thing here where we're standing in front of the world saying we're born again, that God has changed us, that he's given us new life. And here we are needing you to help us work out our issues because we're selfish and materialistic. He's like, you lost. <laughs> you lost. This, this should not happen. Another believer can help you work through stuff. And if it gets to the point where it's that bad, let him take it. Rather that than you lose the testimony that Christ would have us to have. The reality for Paul is that our place in God's kingdom, our identity in Christ, is more important than our immediate comfort or identity in this world that we're strangers and pilgrims in. We're passing through. And he wants these believers to understand my, my life is about more than what I get here or what I have or what I have a right to. I'm supposed to be not just a Christian, but salt and light. I'm supposed to be a witness. People are supposed to see in me the reality of what Christ has done in my heart and in my life. And this action, Christians taking one another to court, was wrong then and it's wrong now. So if you're suing somebody, stop. <laughs> Another believer in Jesus Christ, don't do it. This is what, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? This is, this is so early in church history. And these things are already happening that they had to be addressed then. And here we are thousands of years later and they're still happening now. And God knew this needed to be said. And these believers needed to see I need to be identified more with who I am in Christ than what I am in this world, per se, and even what I can have in this world. So, Paul, he's with that kind of context. If you don't know that background, these verses might seem kind of out of place. It could seem like a strange transition. But it's perspective and warning for Christians. Again, they need to identify with their life in Christ, not with life outside of Christ or who they used to be in Christ. So he'll say, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking about them as ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. And now he's saying, no, unrighteous people who live in these ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know this? They should know this. Paul's clearly stating here, who will go to heaven and who won't? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Notice, do not be deceived. We'll come back to that. I'll read down. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wants to make it clear. Look, people who live in these types of sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is their life, this is their lifestyle. You are supposed to be totally different than this. And he has to tell them, don't be deceived, because people are always deceived about this. There's always some excuse as to why it's okay to live in these types of immoral categories. 
and still go to heaven. People talk about God's love and God's grace to sinners as if God, God, because he has grace, like paid a big tab and now you can run it up. Right. Well, he paid for sin. So doesn't really matter what I'm doing in my life. I'm saying I'm going to heaven. Isn't this what he paid for? It's like when people, when Paul has to say, well, do we sin so that grace can abound? No, God's love and grace is expressed not just to pay for sin, but to save sinners, to actually change individual lives. It's not just a math equation. It's a reality for individuals. And he saves them from their sin. That's what he saves them from. And Paul says, people who are living in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be saved from those things. Don't be deceived. People all over the world are deceived because they do ritual things. If I do ritualistic religious things on Saturday or Sunday, and then I live ungodly the rest of the week, whatever, having sex outside of marriage or a drunkard at the bar or at home or whatever, it's okay because I did those religious things, check the boxes, so I check my boxes, he checks his boxes, my sins are forgiven, we're good to go. Generally respectable, I'm a good person. Don't be deceived, he says. Some people feel like they have a justifiable right to theft or covetousness or the extortion of others. There's a lot of people that literally even go so far as to claim that it's God's blessing on their life when all they're doing is extorting people religiously. They know what they're offering is junk and they're just making money off of it or figuring out how to trick people and to make money off of them. There's a lot of money in the God racket out there. Don't be deceived. They might not look like a drunkard. They might have it together. But you're essentially an extortioner. He says, those people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Cultural morals have changed. God's so loving that he's good with my adulterous relationship or my homosexual relationship. Doesn't he want me to be happy? If you believe things like that, you're deceived. That's why Paul says, don't be deceived. Christianity is not a set of rules for life. It's literally a type of life with its own quality and character. He doesn't look at a sinner and say, here are the new rules. He gives you a totally new type of life. And that life looks like something. And it doesn't look like what you used to have. It looks like what he has. And a misguided type of love for sinners is dangerously close to love for sin. And Paul knows it's easy to get tricked and to think that there's some reason where this type of lifestyle is okay or we can explain it away or because we're okay with it, God's going to be okay with it. And what he says is, no, don't be deceived. My life should not identify me with any unrighteousness. Any of these things, that shouldn't be what my life is. Fornicators, just sex outside of God's marital covenant. Idolaters, 
Certainly, their, their world was filled with idolatry, adulterers, again, heterosexual sin here, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. This is important. Those two Greek words right there are very particular Greek words. The first for homosexuals is passive. It actually means soft or effeminate. It was used in Greek literature for call boys, literally, whether both in the temples or in Roman society. And the other, the sodomites, is a more active word, and it's literally man-betters, those who will go to bed with other men. And it's important because, certainly, again, even in our society, there are those who will say, well, when the Bible talks about homosexual relationships, it talks about them in a negative way. But Paul didn't really know anything about positive, committed homosexual relationships. The Bible doesn't speak about that. And it's important, Paul did know about that. And he actually uses these very direct words here because people need to understand that that's an expression of life outside of God. Just like heterosexual sin can be an expression of life outside of God. Active and passive members, homosexual sin, it's still an expression of life outside of God. Whether he's going to move on there to thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. And this isn't the only list Paul has in the New Testament. There are a number of things. No doubt he's saying things that would relate very often to this Corinthian culture that he would know. These things are probably very evident where they were, and they're still evident today in their pictures. And what Paul's saying is, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is important that this is not who we're identifying as. We are something different. He saved us, which he's going to get to here in a minute. Uh, Particularly, I think, in our day and age with the homosexual issue, because most of these things we can kind of even recognize as sin, The drunkard's usually not identifying themselves as a drunk Christian, because we kind of know that's wrong, or an adulterer Christian. But gay Christian gets thrown around out there sometimes. Sometimes people do it ignorantly because they're not sure. But I, I am not identified when I get saved with my sin. My sin is what separated me from God. I am now identified with my life in him. My identity is a son or daughter of God. And I need to see my life through that lens. Is this who I am in Jesus Christ? There's only one Bible answer for sin, and that's conversion. Not conversion therapy. That's not the Bible answer. New birth, new creation. I can't change my old nature. God cleanses me and gives me a totally new one, a new heart, a new mind, new life, the Spirit of God, which I did not have before. Being a Christian is not keeping rules or going to a building. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And if any of us are actually saved, we should know he made me new and different, that I have life that I did not have outside of him. It's not that we're perfect, but it is that we're changed. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. And sadly, there are many deceived right now. 
And we need to be careful not to be a part of the deception in the world that we live in. Not that we're cruel to people, again. It's not that we're making fun of uh, sinners, but that we can speak the truth in love and we don't encourage them in the things that would separate them from God. Not just the homosexual identity, which is a big thing, but certainly even the materialistic, you notice the thefts, the extortioners, the covetous, things that are very prevalent in America. Don't be deceived. You see, it's not shocking that there's sin in any church body. None of us are perfect. Even very heartbreaking sins at times, right? He just addressed in the last chapter a guy who's in sexual sin with his stepmother. And he says, you guys should mourn over this. You should be sad that this is a reality. So it's not shocking that there's sins in church, but it is shocking that the church can be tricked into embracing a worldly standard. That's what Paul's saying. That, that's what's shocking him here, that, that you guys don't get that this is even wrong, that you can be deceived in the thinking that a lifestyle in these sins is okay with God. That's who you used to be. Notice he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. He says, that's who you used to be. And any of us outside of Christ, you know who would be? Exactly who all the sinners in our world are. <laughs> the sinners in Corinth were people who got saved. And who they were before they were saved were sinners like everybody else in Corinth. Very much like their day and age. And if we weren't saved, we'd be like everybody else who doesn't have Jesus. But what he says is, you, that's who you used to be. You're not that anymore. He's made you new. So you can't identify with that old life. You know who definitely should not be deceived about adultery or homosexuality or theft or drunkenness or idolaters? Ex-sexual sinners and drunks and thieves and idolaters. <laughs> They're the ones who are like, yeah, I know that's not good because that used to be me. And he saved me and he changed me. Paul's like, how are you, how are you deceived about this? How can you even think it's okay to be identified with what you used to be? To take one another to court. You forget who you are now? You're changed. You've been washed, he uses the term. Washed from the filthiness of sin. It's a good reminder for us as believers. We don't live with a stain because of what we used to be involved in. Satan wants us to feel that. Or Satan wants you to think because you sin, you need to stay down. He says, you've been washed. You don't live with the stain now. You've been sanctified. We don't live with the shame of our sin. The, the sin that we've committed in our past outside of Christ does not now keep us from his purpose in our lives. Because we have something in our past, sometimes we could feel like, man, I can't ever really fulfill what God has for me. But to be sanctified is to be set apart for his purposes. That's what Paul's saying. You used to be unholy. Now 
you're set apart for God's purposes. If you're saved, you are set apart to his purposes. You're sanctified, whether you feel it or not, because he says you are. And because he made you sanctified. And he says, and you're justified. Again, we just went through that in Romans. You are not now under the punishment of your sin. You should have had a penalty for your sin. All of us. But God is not holding that punishment over me now. I don't pay for it. He's paid for it. There's no punishment hanging over me. I'm not getting things in my life because I did something in my past that's wrong. He says, that's who you used to be. Such were some of you. You're not that anymore. He's reminding them who they are. So he says in 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and also will raise us up by his power. So Paul here is going to move into, he says, look, now that we're free in Christ, all things are lawful for me. There's some scholarly argument as to whether these are Corinthian sayings of Paul's or Paul's sayings. Is, Is Paul saying things that they said all the time? Like all things are lawful for me so I can kind of sin in these ways and it doesn't matter, right? Food for the body. And that's just like the body's hungry, so I feed it. I have sexual desires, so I feed it. There was some uh, belief that they had kind of a doctrine where they thought, you know, the spirit is what's important now, so what happens with the body doesn't matter. I can just kind of sin, and God doesn't care. If my body has sexual urges, I can give in. If it's hungry, I can give in. But none of that matters as long as my spirit is washed. So uh, whether these are Paul sayings or Corinthian sayings, I would lean that they're Paul's because he's going to repeat it in 1023. So it seems like it's his teaching. But either way, the church has misunderstood and they've abused these types of ideas. So what Paul's going to say is, look, we have freedom and liberty in Christ with permissible things. But he's warning that it's still possible to turn that freedom into something that's notice. All things are not helpful. All things might be lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So as Christians, we have great freedom and liberty in Christ, but we can turn that freedom into something unhelpful or even enslaving. So I have the freedom to put food in my belly. Thank God. I can eat bacon. I can eat. I can have milk and chicken in the same meal. Right? There's these Jews. They had that dietary law they were so used to. Uh, We have freedom in the things that we eat. We have freedom in so many of the things that we do. The food and belly were made for each other. But if I eat in a way that is unhelpful, unhelpful to what my actual calling in Christ Jesus is, right? I have the freedom to eat, but I'm still a son or daughter of God. And my ultimate purpose is to serve him. I can become given over to appetite and even enslaved by it. I mean, insert diet joke here, right? We can all understand what that looks like. You might not feel like you're enslaved to your appetite until 
you find out you got celiacs and now you got to eat gluten-free, right? And now you're like, oh, I'm enslaved to my appetite. Or you got a dairy allergy or something like that. Paul would literally write the Philippians and talk, talk about people whose God is their belly. And in a physical way, it's possible for that to happen. But the reality is, there are all types of freedoms we have in Christ. And if we don't keep them in the context of what our larger identity is, we can easily allow those things to be things that enslave us. Like, people in America are enslaved to their comfort. I'll serve Jesus until it becomes uncomfortable. Then I'm not serving him anymore. Or they're enslaved to their entertainment. We, they're like, well, I'm not watching anything bad. No, but I can so give myself over to the appetite of entertainment that I can't even pray anymore. Can't focus for more than 10 minutes. I can't do the things that are actually healthy for me as a Christian. I'm so enslaved to my appetite that I've never fasted in life, even though I've had scenarios in my life that that probably should have been the response. Or we can be so given to things that are free for us. You, you can live in a home. That's not a sin. But people can literally become enslaved to their homes. The way I pay for it and live in it literally controls my entire life. And what Paul is saying is, all things are lawful, but not everything's helpful. It might not be a sin, but I refuse to be enslaved by any of those things. I'm not going to be enslaved by anything that would keep me from serving him. Free in Christ, but not free to deny him or his purpose in my life or to make myself a slave of another master. And unfortunately, that was particularly what was happening sexual issues for them. And so Paul says, the body is not for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. Say, yeah, you could put food in your belly, but the, the process of eating and feeding your belly and having it get rid of it, Jesus said you put food in you and it comes out in the draught. It doesn't defile you. That's not what defiles a person. He said, that's all going to come to an end. But your human body, the body that God gave you, that doesn't end when you die. Paul said, your body is the Lord's. He has a purpose in it. And he says, the Lord raised up, was raised up by God, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, and will also raise up us, our bodies, by his power. Your body isn't something that's just going to be done away with, like food is done away with. Your body is eternal. God has an eternal purpose in your body. He has something that he's going to do with it. And so the point of your body is not just sexual fulfillment, which is a big message, certainly, in our world. That's why he says, now the body's not for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. We're not just supposed to live just so that we can have sexual expression. That's not what human beings are made for. They're made for something more than that. And sadly... There's a lot of people in our world that think that's the only thing that life is about. Paul says, no, your body's got a bigger purpose than just sexual expression or sexual fulfillment. 
It's going to be raised up like the Lord's body. So in 15, he'll say, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? We're connected with him. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What he says is, our bodies, again, are part of a connection and identity with Jesus Christ. They're not worthless. They're not inconsequential. God made you and formed you. It means he made humanity, men and women, male and female, the Bible says. But he also formed you, like your body. There's a reason nobody here is 6'10", apparently. I don't think anybody looks that tall out there. Because he didn't form you for that. He formed your body with your mental abilities, your physical abilities, your emotional gifts and abilities. He's got a purpose for you. And he has an eternal purpose for us. And what he's saying is, if I'm connected with the Lord, if my body is his, do I ignore that purpose and then take my body and connect it with a harlot? Corinth was famous for its prostitutes. There was a huge temple there. A lot of the worship, the prostitutes were involved. It was not really thought of as immoral. And so Paul is challenging a very accepted practice in that day that you could, you could be married to somebody and go to the temple prostitute or one of the prostitutes in the city, and you weren't considered immoral or having broken your marriage vows. But what Paul is saying is, this is totally different. You're now a son or daughter of God. You're connected with Jesus Christ. He has a purpose for your life and your body, in, and there's an eternal purpose in it. So if I'm connected with him and his purposes, he made you and formed you, do you now just go and take your body and do whatever you want with it? Connect it with somebody who is not a part of those purposes? And what Paul says is, the answer is very simple in 15, certainly not. How could we think that that would be something that's pleasing to him? And so he references now one of the things that God spoke in the beginning in Genesis, he says, don't you know, this is something they should know, that he who's joined to a harlot is one body with her. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, which is a quote from Genesis about Adam and Eve in marriage. But he who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Paul says there's a unique connection that happens in the intimacy between a man and a woman. And there was a purpose that God had in that for a husband and a wife right in the beginning. And he says, if I take that and give it to somebody who is outside of that purpose, I'm already twisting what God has designed. I'm taking my freedom and using it in a way that is against God's purpose and therefore is harmful to me. So Paul says, instead, flee sexual immorality. Flee. It's more than just abstain. It's to leave with zeal. 
flee like Joseph. You run. You get away from it as much as you can. Because the one flesh nature of the sexual relationship has different consequences than other sins. Again, some people say all sins are equal, which they are in some regard. All sins, every sin that he mentioned earlier, can keep us out of the kingdom of God. True, they're equal in that sense. But all sins are not equal in the sense that they don't have the same effect upon us and the same effect upon other people. So if I was sinning as a drunkard, I can get saved and I can get changed and washed, but I might still have effects in my body that I wouldn't have had if I just sinned as a liar or a thief. Does that make sense? So sins are not equal in that regard. And what Paul's saying is the sexual connection that God has designed that I misuse when I take it out of the marriage bed and put it somewhere else has effects. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, puts it like this. The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relationship is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. The act that's meant to commit people together, to tie them together in that commitment, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, can only cause physical, emotional, and spiritual harm if it's used outside of God's prescribed order. That's what Paul's saying here. What's meant to bind that I then have to rip apart is going to have an effect, even if I put a piece of tape on a bunch of things and I keep taking it off. And what Paul's saying is, really what everybody knows, that sex outside of God's purpose isn't safe. The basic message of the world is, as long as nobody gets hurt, it's okay. Except that just because you can't see something wrong on an x-ray doesn't mean nobody's gotten hurt. And nobody actually believes that. Because if we look at the world, man, there's a whole lot of hurt from sex taken out of God's purpose. You look at child abuse, you look at rape, you look at things really that shouldn't even be mentioned. You look at pornography, you look at adultery, you look at all the things that then spill out of that, divorce, abortion, murder, how many of that is tied to people cheating on one another, insecurities, suicide, children crying themselves to sleep because of the relationships between adults, consenting adults. I mean, we could go down the list. It's very simple just to say, if one man married one woman and stayed committed to each other their entire lives, the world would be better off. It's God's command. Now, it's not like that. So he has to warn us. And for those of us who sin, he says, again, you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in him. But he still throws out the warning. We can't think that there's no consequence in life. 
flee sexual immorality. And I would throw out again, you know, if you're here and you know there's wrong in your life, you would heed this. You're a son or daughter of God. That's not your purpose. And Satan wants to kick you because he knows it's going to have effects in your life. Right? And what he wants you to say is, ah, you're already in debt, basically. Just keep going. But like $2,000 of debt versus $20,000 of debt, that's a different hole to dig out of. And Satan wants you to just keep digging a deeper hole for yourself. And Paul's looking at these people saying, you, you can't just use your freedom in Christ to do whatever you want with your body. You're totally ignoring God's purpose in what he designed you for particularly and even that bodily desire. So however you want to work it out, Paul says sins of sexual immorality have unique effects. I can't explain it all. I can simply say that's what the Bible teaches. And so he's warning, flee that. Don't you know you're supposed to be one spirit with the Lord? Or, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? He says the presence of God literally is in your body. And it doesn't negate the value of the body. Just because God lives in you doesn't mean your body's worthless. It elevates the value of your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word for temple there is the holy place versus the outer temple. Again, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Incredible Christian, would say, without question, the teaching of the New Testament is that the very God himself inhabits the nature of his true children. How this can be, I do not know. But neither do I know how my soul inhabits my body. God lives in you. If you're saved, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And how does God live in us if he lives in us? Does he live in us passively? Is he sleeping in the boat? No, certainly not. The Bible says he is active in you. Paul says, Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh is not me, but Christ lives in me. He would say to the Philippians, it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. The life of God is working in you. It wants to do things. It is active. It is telling you how to respond, whether you like it or not. It is convicting. It is encouraging. It is directing the will of God is being worked out in your heart, in your life. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you have an incredible gift and treasure. That's why Paul says, it's, it's very unique here. He says, whom you have from God. Don't you know the Spirit is in you? Whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit living in us is the unique gift of our day and age. It is the promise of Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living in your body like the Israelite wished to live in the tabernacle or the temple. Your body is the temple. He dwells closer to you than they had even the presence of the Lord sitting outside of the camp looking at the pillar of fire or cloud. He is nearer to you in a unique way. That's why Paul says, you have him from God. Have him never to leave is the promise. He's never going to leave you.
You're going to have him with you to the end. And we should realize that we have been gifted with an incredible deposit. And we should treasure it. And we should not allow the enemy to stain it. So treasure held in earthen vessels. But it's an incredible promise. And we got it at great cost. Do we realize that? Do we guard it? Jesus spoke of the temple of his own body. You and I, we have that temple. In the Old Testament, right, the temple had a lot of different conditions. God was there, but there were times in Israel's history where the temple was given over to the Lord. It was blessed. It was taken care of. It was in good condition for its purpose. And then there was other times where the temple was broken down, taken over, robbed. What is the condition of our temple? Cold, neglected, broken down? Or is it in good condition for what the Lord would have it to be? Or is it desecrated and given over to idols? It's the Lord's temple either way. But he says, don't you realize it's the Lord's temple? Temple? We should. We should. That's our true position. And our final fact is, he says, you have it from God and you are not your own. Paul makes it real clear. You're not your own. It's the anti-American message here. <laughs> you have no right to yourself. That's the Christian message. Now, we might not like that. Some people might not like it, kind of, until you think about it. Right? If Jesus didn't buy me, then I have no claim on salvation. If he didn't pay the price, if he does not own me, then I am not washed I am not sanctified, and I am not justified. I own myself, but I am filthy, unholy, and under the wrath of God. And I can't change myself. But if he paid for me, then I'm bought at an incredible price. I'm valuable. I'm cleansed. I have a purpose in life, and I have a destiny that's sure. And I have a master, but it's a good master. And I'm enslaved to his will, but that will actually allows me to live out what I'm actually meant to do. So Paul says, finishing, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, not just one or the other, both. So, What's the best life? To own my own life and live in rebellion to God as his enemy and use my body to glorify myself? To live free and be enslaved by my own passions? To be the slave to sin? Is that the best life? Or to know that I'm not my own? Again, I'm bought with the price of the blood of God and he is now literally dwelling in me. And I'm a slave to glorify him in a way that's unique to me. Like nothing else in creation can glorify him. Is that the best life? It's actually a trick question because that's the only life. There actually isn't life outside of that. You might be alive, but you haven't lived. That's what the Bible says. 
And what we have is life in Jesus Christ, but we're not our own. Been bought with a price. And it's an incredible thing that he's purchased for us. So let's stand. We're going to pray. If there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you want to know the reality of Christ's life in you, he offers that to you freely. Can't get it yourself. Can only get it because of his work on the cross for you. Come down. Let us pray with you. Love for you to give your life to him and to know that you're bought and not your own. But let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts and lives. I pray that you would allow us to live with eyes open to that reality. You know how easily we can deceive ourselves. You know how easily we can be deceived. But Lord, in your light, we see light. And there's no darkness at all in you. And you can open our eyes, give us understanding in our hearts, and allow us to see clearly what we need to see. And you give, Lord Jesus, all that we need in you. So we turn to you. We pray, Lord, that certainly as a fellowship here, we would have the right witness before the outside world that doesn't know you by the love that we have toward one another as your saints and as your disciples. So allow us to increase and abound in that, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.